Chapter Twenty Four of In the Cage by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. If life at Cocker's, with the dreadful drop of August, had lost something of its savor, she had not been slow to infer that a heavier blight had fallen on the graceful industry of Mrs. Jordan. With Lord Rye and Lady Ventnor and Mrs. Bubb all out of town, with the blinds down on all the homes of luxury, this ingenious woman might well have found her wonderful taste left quite on her hands. She bore up, however, in a way that began by exciting much of her young friend's esteem. They perhaps even more frequently met as the wine of life flowed less free from other sources, and each, in the lack of better diversion, carried on with more mystification for the other an intercourse that consisted not a little in peeping out and drawing back. Each waited for the other to commit herself, each profusely curtained for the other the limits of low horizons. Mrs. Jordan was indeed probably the more reckless skirmisher. Nothing could exceed her frequent incoherence unless it was indeed her occasional bursts of confidence. Her account of her private affairs rose and fell like a flame in the wind, sometimes the bravest bonfire and sometimes a handful of ashes. This our young woman took to be an effect of the position, at one moment and another, of the famous door of the great world. She had been struck in one of her halfpenny volumes with the translation of a French proverb, according to which such a door, any door, had to be either open or shut and it seemed part of the precariousness of Mrs. Jordan's life that hers mostly managed to be neither. There had been occasions when it appeared to gape wide, fairly to woo her across its threshold. There had been others, of an order distinctly disconcerting, when it was all but banged in her face. On the whole, however, she had evidently not lost heart. These still belonged to the class of things in spite of which she looked well. She intimated that the profits of her trade had swollen so as to float her through any state of the tide, and she had, besides this, a hundred profundities and explanations. She rose superior above all, on the happy fact that there were always gentlemen in town, and that gentlemen were her greatest admirers, gentlemen from the city in especial, as to whom she was full of information about the passion and pride excited in such breasts by the elements of her charming commerce. The city men did in short go in for flowers. There was a certain type of awfully smart stockbroker, Lord Rye called them Jews and bounders, but she didn't care, whose extravagance, she more than once threw out, had really, if one had any conscience, to be forcibly restrained. It was not perhaps a pure love of beauty, it was a matter of vanity and a sign of business. They wished to crush their rivals, and that was one of their weapons. Mrs. Jordan's shrewdness was extreme. She knew in any case her customer. She dealt, as she said, with all sorts. And it was at the worst a race for her, a race even in the dull months, from one set of chambers to another. And then, after all, there were also still the ladies, the ladies of stockbroking circles were perpetually up and down. They were not quite perhaps Mrs. Bubb or Lady Ventnor, but you couldn't tell the difference unless you quarreled with them, and then you knew it only by their making up sooner. These ladies formed the branch of her subject on which she most swayed in the breeze, 
to that degree that her confidant had ended with an inference or two tending to banish regret for opportunities not embraced. There were indeed tea-gowns that Mrs. Jordan described, but tea-gowns were not the whole of respectability, and it was odd that a clergyman's widow should sometimes speak as if she almost thought so. She came back, it was true, unfailingly to Lord Rye, never evidently quite losing sight of him even on the longest excursions. That he was kindness itself had become in fact the very moral it all pointed, pointed in strange flashes of the poor woman's near-sighted eyes. She launched at her young friend portentous looks, solemn heralds of some extraordinary communication. The communication itself from week to week hung fire, but it was to the facts over which it hovered that she owed her power of going on. They are, in one way and another, she often emphasized, a tower of strength. And as the allusion was to the aristocracy, if they were so in one way, they should require to be so in two. She thoroughly knew, however, how many ways Mrs. Jordan counted in. It all meant simply that her fate was pressing her close. If that fate was to be sealed at the matrimonial altar, it was perhaps not remarkable that she shouldn't come all at once to the scratch of overwhelming a mere telegraphist. It would necessarily present to such a person a prospect of regretful sacrifice. Lord Rye, if it was Lord Rye, wouldn't be kind to a nonentity of that sort, even though people quite as good had been. One Sunday afternoon in November they went, by arrangement, to church together, after which, on the inspiration of the moment, the arrangement had not included it, they proceeded to Mrs. Jordan's lodging in the region of Mida Vale. She had raved to her friend about her service of predilection. She was excessively high, and had more than once wished to introduce the girl to the same comfort and privilege. There was a thick brown fog, and Mida Vale tasted of acrid smoke. But they had been sitting among chants and incense and wonderful music, during which, though the effect of such things on her mind was great, our young lady had indulged in a series of reflections but indirectly related to them. One of these was the result of Mrs. Jordan's having said to her on the way, and with a certain fine significance, that Lord Rye had been for some time in town. She had spoken as if it were a circumstance to which little required to be added, as if the bearing of such an item on her life might easily be grasped. Perhaps it was the wonder of whether Lord Rye wished to marry her that made her guest, with thoughts straying to that quarter, quite determined that some other nuptials also should take place at St. Julian's. Mr. Mudge was still an attendant at his Wesleyan chapel, but this was the least of her worries. It had never even vexed her enough for her to so much as name it to Mrs. Jordan. Mr. Mudge's form of worship was one of several things. They made up in superiority and beauty for what they wanted in number, that she had long ago settled he should take from her, and she had now, moreover, for the first time definitely established her own. Its principal feature was that it was to be the same as that of Mrs. Jordan and Lord Rye, which was indeed very much what she said to her hostess as they sat together later on. The brown fog was in this hostess's little parlour, where it acted as a postponement of the question of there being, besides, anything else than the teacups and a pewter pot, and a very black little fire, and a paraffin lamp without a shade. There was at any rate no sign of a flower, 
It was not for herself Mrs. Jordan gathered sweets. The girl waited till they had had a cup of tea, waited for the announcement that she fairly believed her friend had, this time, possessed herself of her formally at last to make. But nothing came, after the interval, save a little poke at the fire, which was like the clearing of a throat for a speech. End of chapter 24